If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. The investigation leads Whimsy to a quaint Yorkshire farm. But why would the farmer set the dogs on him? Dorothy Sayers, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The vintage episode for the week is... The Happy Prince and Other Stories by Oscar Wilde. Three short stories you are sure to enjoy. Be sure to check it out on Tuesday. If you've enjoyed the show, please become a monthly supporter and help us keep the lights on. Please go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a monthly supporter for as little as $5 a month. As a thank you gesture, we'll send you a coupon code every month for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more, and you get more. It's a great way to help us keep producing amazing audiobook content. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a supporter today. The Classic Tales Book Club is moving forward. If any of you have any idea you'd like to contribute or a special knowledge or skill you think might help, please send me an email through the website. I'd really like to make this a fun place where we can have great conversations and I'm learning how difficult that is to create. So if you'd like to pitch in, let me know. Details coming soon. And now, Clouds of Witness, Part 3 of 9, by Dorothy Sayers. I wonder, said the Honorable Freddy Arbuthnot, what damn silly fool invented Sunday afternoon. He shoveled coals onto the library fire with a vicious clatter, waking Colonel Marchbanks, who said, "'Hey, yes, quite right,' and fell asleep again instantly. "'Don't you grumble, Freddy,' said Lord Peter, who had been occupied for some time in opening and shutting all the drawers of the writing-table in a thoroughly irritating manner, and idly snapping to and fro the catch of the French window. "'Think how dull old Jerry must feel.' Suppose I'd better write him a line. He returned to the table and took a sheet of paper. Do people use this room much to write letters in, do you know? No idea, said the Honourable Freddy. Never write myself. Where's the point of writing when you can wire? Encourages people to write back, that's all. I think Denver writes in here when he writes anywhere. And I saw the Colonel wrestling with a pen and ink a day or two ago. Didn't you, Colonel? The Colonel grunted answering to his name like a dog that wags its tail in its sleep. "'What's the matter? Ain't there any ink?' "'I only wondered,' replied Peter placidly. He slipped a paper knife under the top sheet of the blotting pad and held it up to the light. "'Quite right, old man. Give you full marks for observation. Here's Jerry's signature, and the Colonel's, and a big sprawly hand which I should judge to be feminine.' He looked at the sheet again shook his head, folded it up, 
and placed it in his pocketbook. Doesn't seem to be anything here, he commented. But you never know. Five something of fine something. Grouse, probably. O.E. is fo is found, I suppose. Well, it can't do any harm to keep it. He spread out his paper and began. Dear Jerry, here I am, the family sleuth on the trail, and it's damned exciting. The colonel snored. Sunday afternoon. Parker had gone with the car to King's Fenton, with orders to look in at Riddlesdale on the way and inquire for a green-eyed cat, also for a young man with a sidecar. The Duchess was lying down. Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson had taken her husband for a brisk walk. Upstairs, somewhere, Mrs. Marchbanks enjoyed a perfect communion of thought with her husband. Lord Peter's pen gritted gently over the paper, stopped, moved on again, stopped altogether. He leaned his long chin on his hands and stared out of the window, against which there came sudden little swishes of rain, and from time to time a soft dead leaf. The colonel snored, the fire tinkled. The Honourable Freddy began to hum and tap his fingers on the arms of his chair. The clock moved slothfully on to five o'clock, which brought tea-time and the Duchess. "'How's Mary?' asked Lord Peter, coming suddenly into the firelight. "'I'm really worried about her,' said the Duchess. "'She is giving way to her nerves in the strangest manner. It's so unlike her. She will hardly let anybody come near her. I have sent for Dr. Thorpe again.' "'Don't you think she'd be better if she got up and came downstairs a bit?' suggested Whimsy. "'Gets broodin' about things all by herself, I shouldn't wonder. "'Wants a bit of Freddy's intellectual conversation to cheer her up. "'You forget, poor girl,' said the Duchess. "'She was engaged to Captain Cathcart. "'Everybody isn't as callous as you are.' "'Any more letters, Your Grace?' asked the footman, appearing with the post-bag. "'Oh, are you going down now?' said Whimsy. Yes, here you are, and here's one other, if you don't mind waiting a minute while I write it. Wish I could write the rate people do on the cinema, he added, scribbling rapidly as he spoke. Dear Lillian, your father has killed Mr. William Snooks, and unless you sell me a thousand pounds by bearer, I shall disclose all to your husband. Sincerely, Earl of Digglesbrake. That's the style, and all done in one scrape of the pen. Here you are, Fleming. The letter was addressed to Her Grace the Dowager Duchess of Denver. From the Morning Post of Monday, November blank, 19 blank. Abandoned Motorcycle A singular discovery was made yesterday by a cattle drover. He is accustomed to water his animals in a certain pond, lying a little off the road about twelve miles south of Ripley. On this occasion, he saw that one of them appeared to be in difficulties. On going to the rescue, he found the animal entangled in a motorcycle, which had been driven into the pond and abandoned. With the assistance of a couple of workmen, he extricated the machine. It is a Douglas, with dark grey sidecar. The number plates and license holder have been carefully removed. The pond is a deep one, and the outfit was entirely submerged. It seems probable, however, that it could not have been there for more than a week since the pond is much used on Sundays and Mondays for the watering of cattle. The police are making search for the owner. The front tyre of the bicycle is a new Dunlop, 
and the sidecar tyre has been repaired with a gaiter. The machine is a 1914 model, much worn. That seems to strike a chord, said Lord Peter musingly. He consulted a timetable for the time of the next train to Ripley and ordered the car. And send Bunter to me, he added. That gentleman arrived just as his master was struggling into an overcoat. What was that thing in last Thursday's paper about a number plate, Bunter? inquired his lordship. Mr. Bunter produced, apparently by Le Jardin, a cutting from an evening paper. Number Plate Mystery The Reverend Nathaniel Fowlis of St. Simon's, North Felcourt, was stopped at six o'clock this morning for riding a motorcycle without number plates. The Reverend Gentleman seemed thunderstruck when his attention was called to the matter. He explained that he had been sent for in great haste at four a.m., to administer the sacrament to a dying parishioner six miles away. He hastened out on his motorcycle, which he confidingly left by the roadside while executing his sacred duties. Mr. Fowlis left the house at 5.30 without noticing that anything was wrong. Mr. Fowlis is well known in North Felcourt and the surrounding country, and there seems little doubt that he has been the victim of a senseless practical joke. North Felcourt is a small village a couple of miles north of Ripley. "'I'm going to Ripley, Bunter,' said Lord Peter. "'Yes, my lord. Does your lordship require me?' "'No,' said Lord Peter. "'But who has been ladies-maiding my sister, Bunter?' "'Ellen, my lord, the housemaid.' "'Then I wish you'd exercise your powers of conversation on Ellen.' "'Very good, my lord. "'Does she mend my sister's clothes and brush her skirts and all that?' "'I believe so, my lord. "'Nothing she may think is of any importance, you know, Bunter.' I wouldn't suggest such a thing to a woman, my lord. It goes to their heads, if I may say so. When did Mr. Parker leave for town? At six o'clock this morning, my lord. Circumstances favoured Mr. Bunter's inquiries. He bumped into Ellen as she was descending the back stairs with an armful of clothing. A pair of leather gauntlets was jerked from the top of the pile, and picking them up, he apologetically followed the young woman into the servants' hall. There, said Ellen, flinging her burden on the table. And the work I've had to get them, I'm sure. Tantrums, that's what I call it. Pretending you've got such a headache you can't let a person into the room to take your things down to brush. And as soon as they're out of the way, up and out of the bed and traipsing all over the place. Tisn't what I call a headache, would you know? But there, I dare say you don't get them like I do. Regular fit to split my headache sometimes. Couldn't keep on my feet, not if the house was burning down. I just have to lie down and keep laying. Something cruel it is, and gives a person such wrinkles in one's forehead. I'm sure I don't see any wrinkles, said Mr. Bunter. But perhaps I haven't looked hard enough. An interlude followed, during which Mr. Bunter looked hard enough and close enough to distinguish wrinkles. No, said he, wrinkles? I don't believe I'd see any if I was to take his lordship's big microscope he keeps up in town. Lord, now, Mr. Bunter, said Ellen, fetching a sponge and bottle of benzene from the cupboard. What would his lordship be using a thing like that for now? Why, in our hobby, you see, Miss Ellen, which is criminal investigation, we might want to see something magnified extra big, as it might be handwriting in a forgery case to see if anything's been altered or rubbed out, or if different kinds of ink have been used. Or we might want to look at the roots of a lock of hair, 
to see if it's been torn out or fallen out. Or take bloodstains now. We'd want to know if it was animal's blood or human blood, or maybe only a glass of port. Now is it really true, Mr. Bunter? said Ellen, laying a tweed skirt out upon the table and unstoppering the benzine. That you and Lord Peter can find out all that? Of course we aren't analytical chemists, Mr. Bunter replied. But his lordship's dabbled in a lot of things. Enough to know when anything looks suspicious, and if we've any doubts, we send to a very famous scientific gentleman. He gallantly intercepted Ellen's hand as it approached the skirt with a benzene-soaked sponge. For instance, now, here's a stain on the hem of this skirt, just at the bottom of the side seam. Now, supposing it was a case of murder, we'll say, and the person that had worn this skirt was suspected. I should examine that stain. Here Mr. Bunter whipped a lens out of his pocket. Then I might try it at one edge with a wet handkerchief. He suited the action to the word. And I should find, you see, that it came off red. Then I should turn the skirt inside out. I should see that the stain went right through, and I should take my scissors— Mr. Bunter produced a small, sharp pear— and snip off a tiny bit of the inside edge of the seam, like this. He did so. And pop it into a little pill-box, so. The pill-box appeared magically from an inner pocket. And seal it up both sides with a wafer, and right on the top, Lady Mary Whimsey's skirt, and the date. Then I should send it straight off to the analytical gentleman in London, and he'd look through his microscope and tell me right off that it was rabbit's blood, maybe and how many days it had been there, and that would be the end of that, finished Mr. Bunter triumphantly, replacing his nail-scissors and thoughtlessly pocketing the pill-box with its contents. Well, he'd be wrong, then, said Ellen, with an engaging toss of the head, because it's bird's blood, and not rabbit's at all, because her ladyship told me so, and wouldn't it be quicker just to go and ask the person, than get fiddling round with your silly old microscope and things? "'Well, I only mentioned rabbits for an example,' said Mr. Bunter. "'Funny she should have got a stain down there. "'Must have regularly knelt in it. "'Yes, bled a lot, hasn't it, poor thing? "'Somebody must have been shooting careless-like. "'Twasn't his grace, nor yet the captain, poor man. "'Perhaps it was Mr. Arbuthnot. "'He shoots a bit wild sometimes. "'It's a nasty mess, anyway. "'And it's so hard to clean off, being left so long.' I'm sure I wasn't thinking about cleaning nothing the day the poor captain was killed. And then the coroner's inquest. Horrid it was. And his grace being took off like that? Well, there it upset me. I suppose I'm a bit sensitive. Anyhow, we was all at sixes and sevens for a day or two. And then her ladyship shuts herself up in her room and won't let me go near the wardrobe. Oh, she says, do leave that wardrobe door alone. Don't you know it squeaks and my head's so bad and my nerves so bad? I can't stand it, she says. I was only going to brush your skirts, my lady, I says. Bother my skirts, says her ladyship, and do go away, Ellen. I shall scream if I shall see you fidgeting about there. You get on my nerves, she says. Well, I didn't see why I should go on, not after being spoken to like that. It's very fine to be a ladyship, and all your tempers coddled and called nervous prostration. I know I was dreadfully cut up about poor Bert, my young man that was killed in the war. Nearly cried my eyes out, I did, but law, Mr. Bunter, I'd be ashamed to go on so. Besides, between you and the gatepost, Lady Mary wasn't that fond of the captain. Never appreciated him. That's what I said to Cook at the time, and she agreed with me. 
Yet a way with him the captain had. Always quite the gentleman, of course. And never said anything as wasn't his place. I don't mean that, but I mean as it was a pleasure to do anything for him. Such a handsome man as he was, too, Mr. Bunter. Ah, said Mr. Bunter. So, on the whole, her ladyship was a bit more upset than you expected her to be. Well, to tell you the truth, Mr. Bunter, I think it's just temper. She wanted to get married and away from home. Drat this stain, it's regular dried in. She and his grace never could get on, and when she was away in London during the war, she had a rare old time, nursing officers and going about with all kinds of queer people his grace didn't approve of. Then she had some sort of a love affair with some quite low-down sort of fellow, so Cook says. I think he was one of them dirty Russians as wants to blow us all to smithereens, as if there hadn't been enough people blown up in the war already. Anyhow, his grace made a dreadful fuss and stopped supplies and sent for her ladyship home. And ever since then, she's been just mad to be off with somebody. Full of notions she is. Makes me tired, I can tell you. Now I'm sorry for his grace. I can see what he thinks, poor gentleman. And then to be taken up for murder and put in jail, just like one of them nasty tramps. Fancy. Ellen, having exhausted her breath and finished cleaning off the bloodstains, paused and straightened her back. Hard work it is, she said. Rubbing? I quite ache. If you would allow me to help you, said Mr. Bunter, appropriating the hot water, the benzene bottle and the sponge, he turned up another breadth of the skirt. "'Have you got a brush handy?' he asked. "'To take this mud off?' "'You're as blind as a bat, Mr. Bunter,' said Ellen, giggling. "'Can't you see it just in front of you?' "'Ah, yes,' said the valet. "'But that's not as hard a one as I'd like. "'Just you run and get me a real hard one, there's a dear good girl, "'and I'll fix this for you.' "'Cheek,' said Ellen. "'But,' she added, "'relenting before the admiring gleam in Mr. Bunter's eye. "'I'll get the clothes-brush out the hole for you. "'That's hard as a brickbat, that is.' "'No sooner was she out of the room "'than Mr. Bunter produced a pocket-knife "'and two more pill-boxes. "'In a twinkling of an eye, "'he had scraped the surface of the skirt in two places "'and written two fresh labels. "'Gravel from Lady Mary's skirt, "'about six inches from hem. "'Silver sand from hem of Lady Mary's skirt.' He added the date, and had hardly pocketed the boxes when Ellen returned with the clothes-brush. The cleaning process continued for some time, to the accompaniment of desultory conversation. A third stain on the skirt caused Mr. Bunter to stare critically. Alone, he said. Her ladyship's been trying her hand at cleaning this herself. What? cried Ellen. She peered closely at the mark, which at one edge was smeared and whitened and had a slightly greasy appearance. "'Well, I never!' she exclaimed. "'So she has! Whatever is that for, I wonder? And her pretending to be so ill she couldn't raise her head off the pillow. She's a sly one, she is!' "'Couldn't it have been done before?' suggested Mr. Bunter. "'Well, she might have been at it between the day the captain was killed and the inquest,' agreed Ellen. "'Though you wouldn't think that was a time to choose to begin learning domestic work.' She ain't much hand at it, anyhow, for all her nursing. I never believe that came to anything. She used soap, said Mr. Bunter, benzening away resolutely. Can she boil water in her bedroom? Now whatever should she do that for, Mr. Bunter? exclaimed Ellen, amazed. 
You don't think she keeps a kettle? I bring up her morning tea. Ladyships don't want to boil water. No, said Mr. Bunter. And why didn't she get it from the bathroom? He scrutinized the stain more carefully still. Very amateurish, he said. Distinctly amateurish. Interrupted, I fancy. An energetic young lady, but not ingenious. The last remarks were addressed in confidence to the benzene bottle. Ellen had put her head out of the window to talk to the gamekeeper. The police superintendent at Ripley received Lord Peter, at first frigidly, and later, when he found out who he was, with a mixture of the official attitude to private detectives and the official attitude to a duke's son. "'I've come to you,' said Whimsy, "'because you can do this combing-out business a sight better than an amateur like myself. I suppose your fine organization's hard at work already, what?' "'Naturally,' said the superintendent. "'But it's not altogether easy to trace a motorcycle without knowing the number.' Look at the Bonmouth murder. He shook his head regretfully and accepted a VR EVR. We didn't think at first of connecting him with the number plate business, the superintendent went on in a careless tone, which somehow conveyed to Lord Peter that his own remarks within the last half hour had established the connection in the official mind for the first time. Of course, if he'd been seen going through Ripley without a number plate, he'd have been noticed and stopped. For as with Mr. Fowlis's, he was as safe as, as the Bank of England, he concluded in a burst of originality. Obviously, said Whimsy. Very agitating for the parson, poor chap. So early in the morning, too. I suppose it was just taken to be a practical joke? Just that, agreed the superintendent. But after hearing what you have to tell us, we shall use our best efforts to get the man. I expect his grace won't be any too sorry to hear he's found— you may rely on us, and if we find the man or the number plates— Lord bless us and save us, man, broke in Lord Peter with unexpected vivacity. You're not going to waste your time looking for the number plates. What do you suppose he'd pinch the curate's plates for if he wanted to advertise his own about the neighbourhood? Once you drop on them, you've got his name and address. As long as they're in his trousers' pocket, you're up a gum tree. Now, forgive me, Superintendent, for shoving along with my opinion— but I simply can't bear to think of you taking all that trouble for nothing, dragging ponds and turning over rubber sheeps to look for number plates that ain't there. You just scour the railway stations for a young man, six foot one or two, with a number ten shoe, and dressed in a Burberry that's lost its belt, and with a deep scratch on one of his hands. And look here, here's my address, and I'll be very grateful if you let me know anything that turns up. So awkward for my brother, you know, all this. Sensitive man. "'Feels it keenly. "'By the way, I'm a very uncertain bird, "'always hopping about. "'You might wire me any news in duplicate "'to Riddlesdale and to town. "'110 Piccadilly. "'Always delighted to see you, by the way, "'if ever you're in town. "'You'll forgive me sloping off now, won't you? "'I've got a lot to do.' "'Returning to Riddlesdale, "'Lord Peter found a new visitor seated at the tea-table. "'At Peter's entry, he rose into towering height.' and extended a shapely, expressive hand that would have made an actor's fortune. He was not an actor, but he found this hand useful nevertheless in the exploitation of dramatic moments. His magnificent build and the nobility of his head and mask were impressive. His features were flawless, his eyes ruthless. The Dowager Duchess had once remarked, 
Sir Impey Biggs is the handsomest man in England, and no woman will ever care tuppence for him. He was, in fact, thirty-eight and a bachelor, and was celebrated for his rhetoric and his suave but pitiless dissection of hostile witnesses. The breeding of canaries was his unexpected hobby, and besides their song he could appreciate no music but review airs. He answered Whimsy's greeting in his beautiful, resonant, and exquisitely controlled voice. Tragic irony, cutting contempt, or savage indignation were the emotions by which Sir Impey Biggs swayed court and jury. He prosecuted murderers of the innocent, defended in actions for criminal libel, and moving others was himself as stone. Whimsy expressed himself delighted to see him in a voice, by contrast, more husky and hesitant even than usual. "'You just come from Jerry?' he asked. "'Fresh toast, please, Fleming. How is he? Enjoying it? I never knew a fellow like Jerry for getting the least possible out of any situation. I'd rather like the experience myself, you know. Only I'd hate being shut up and watching the other idiots bungling my case. No reflection on Murbles and you, Biggs. I mean myself.' I mean, the man who'd be me if I was... Jerry, you follow me? I was just saying to Sir Impey, said the Duchess, that he really must make Gerald say what he was doing in the garden at three in the morning. If only I'd been at Riddlesdale, none of this would have happened. Of course, we all know that he wasn't doing any harm, but we can't expect the jurymen to understand that. The lower orders are so prejudiced. It is absurd of Gerald not to realise that he must speak out. He has no consideration. I am doing my very best to persuade him, Duchess, said Sir Impey. But you must have patience. Lawyers enjoy a little mystery, you know. Why, if everybody came forward and told the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth straight out, we should all retire to the workhouse. "'Captain Cathcart's death is very mysterious,' said the Duchess. "'Though, when I think of the things that have come out about him, "'it really seems quite providential, as far as my sister-in-law is concerned. "'I suppose you couldn't get him to bring it in death by the visitation of God, could you, Biggs?' "'suggested Lord Peter. "'Sort of judgment for wanting to marry into our family, what?' "'I have known less reasonable verdicts,' returned Biggs dryly. It's wonderful what you can suggest to a jury if you try. I remember once at the Liverpool Assizes. He steered skilfully away into a quiet channel of reminiscence. Lord Peter watched his statuesque profile against the fire. It reminded him of the severe beauty of the charioteer of Delphi, and was about as communicative. It was not until after dinner that Sir Impey opened his mind to Whimsy. The Duchess had gone to bed, and the two men were alone in the library. Peter, scrupulously in evening dress, had been valeted by Bunter, and had been more than usually rambling and cheerful all evening. He now took a cigar, retired to the largest chair, and effaced himself in a complete silence. Sir Impey Biggs walked up and down for some half-hour, smoking. Then he came across with determination, brutally switched on a reading lamp right into Peter's face, sat down opposite to him, and said, "'Now, Whimsy, I want to know all you know.' "'Do you, though?' said Peter. He got up, disconnected the reading lamp, and carried it away to a side table. "'No bullying of the witness, though,' he added, and grinned. 
I don't care so long as you wake up, said Biggs unperturbed. Now then. Lord Peter removed his cigar from his mouth, considered it with his head on one side, turned it carefully over, decided that the ash could hang on to its parent leaf for another minute or two, smoked without speaking until collapse was inevitable, took the cigar out again, deposited the ash entire in the exact centre of the ashtray, and began his statement, omitting only the matter of the suitcase and Bunter's information obtained from Ellen. Sir Impey Biggs listened with what Peter irritably described as a cross-examining countenance, putting a sharp question every now and again. He made a few notes, and when Whimsy had finished, sat tapping his notebook thoughtfully. I think we can make a case out of this, he said, even if the police don't find your mysterious man. Denver's silence is an awkward complication, of course. He hooded his eyes for a moment. Did you say you'd put the police on to find the fellow? Yes. Have you a very poor opinion of the police? Not for that kind of thing. That's in their line. They have all the facilities and do it well. Ah, you expect to find the man, do you? I hope to. Ah, what do you think is going to happen to my case if you do find him, Whimsy? What do I see here, Whimsy? said the barrister. You're not a fool, and it's no use trying to look like a country policeman. You are really trying to find this man? Certainly. Just as you like, of course. But my hands are rather tied already. Has it ever occurred to you that perhaps he'd better not be found? Whimsy stared at the lawyer with such honest astonishment as actually to disarm him. Remember this, said the latter earnestly, that if once the police get hold of a thing or a person, it's no use relying on my or Merble's or anybody's professional discretion. Everything's raked out into the light of common day, and very common it is. Here's Denver accused of murder, and he refuses in the most categorical way to give me the smallest assistance. Jerry's an ass. He doesn't realize. Do you suppose? broke in Biggs. I have not made it my business to make him realize. All he says is, they can't hang me. I didn't kill the man, though I think it's a jolly good thing he's dead. It's no business of theirs what I was doing in the garden. Now I ask you, Whimsy, is that a reasonable attitude for a man in Denver's position to take up? Peter muttered something about, never had any sense. Had anybody told Denver about this other man? Something vague was said about footsteps at the inquest, I believe. That Scotland Yard man is your personal friend, I'm told. Yes, so much the better. He can hold his tongue. Look here, Biggs. This is all damned impressive and mysterious, but what are you getting at? Why shouldn't I lay hold of the beggar if I can? I'll answer that question by another. Sir Impey leaned forward a little. Why is Denver screening him? Sir Impey Biggs was accustomed to boast that no witness could perjure himself in his presence undetected. As he put the question, he released the other's eyes from his, and glanced down with finest cunning on Whimsy's long, flexible mouth and nervous hands. When he glanced up again a second later, he met the eyes passing, guarded and inscrutable, through all the changes expressive of surprised enlightenment. But by that time it was too late. 
he had seen a little line at the corner of the mouth fade out, and the fingers relax ever so slightly. The first movement had been one of relief. A jove, said Peter. I never thought of that. What sleuths you lawyers are! If that's so, I'd better be careful, hadn't I? Always was a bit rash. My mother says, You're a clever devil, Whimsy, said the barrister. I may be wrong, then. Find your man, by all means. There's just one other thing I'd like to ask. Whom are you screening? Look here, Biggs, said Whimsy. You're not paid to ask that kind of question here, you know. You can jolly well wait till you get into court. It's your job to make the best of the stuff we serve up to you, not to give us the third degree. Suppose I murdered Cathcart myself. You didn't. I know I didn't. But if I did, I'm not going to have you asking questions and looking at me in that tone of voice. However, just to oblige you, I don't mind saying plainly that I don't know who did away with the fellow. When I do, I'll tell you. You will? Yes, I will. But not till I'm sure. You people can make such a little circumstantial evidence go such a damn long way. You might hang me while I was only in the early stages of suspecting myself. Hmm, said Biggs. Meanwhile, I tell you candidly, I am taking the line that they can't make out a case. Not proven, eh? Well, anyhow, Biggs, I swear my brother shan't hang for lack of my evidence. Of course not, said Biggs, adding inwardly, but you hope it won't come to that. A spurt of rain plashed down on the wide chimney and sizzled on the logs. Craven Hotel, Strand, W.C., Tuesday. My dear Whimsy, a line as I promised to report progress, but it's precious little. On the journey up, I sat next to Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson, and opened and shut the window for her and looked after her parcels. She mentioned that when your sister roused the household on Thursday morning, she went first to Mr. Arbuthnot's room a circumstance which the lady seemed to think odd, but which is natural enough when you come to think of it, the room being directly opposite the head of the staircase. It was Mr. Arbuthnot who knocked up the Pettigrew Robinsons, and Mr. P. ran downstairs immediately. Mrs. P. then saw that Lady Mary was looking very faint and tried to support her. Your sister threw her off, rudely, Mrs. P. says, declined in a most savage manner all offers of assistance rushed to her own room, and locked herself in. Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson listened at the door to make sure, as she says, that everything was all right, but hearing her moving about and slamming cupboards, she concluded that she would have more chance poking her finger into a pie downstairs, and departed. If Mrs. Marchbanks had told me this, I admit I should have thought the episode worth looking into. But I feel strongly that if I were dying, I should still lock the door between myself and Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson. Mrs. P. was quite sure that at no time had Lady Mary anything in her hand. She was dressed as described at the inquest, a long coat over her pyjamas. Sleeping suit was Mrs. P.'s expression. Stout shoes and a woolly cap, and she kept those garments on throughout the subsequent visit of the doctor. Another odd little circumstance is that Mrs. Pettigrew Robinson, who was awake, you remember, from 2 a.m. onwards, is certain that just before Lady Mary knocked on Mr. Arbuthnot's door, 
she heard a door slam somewhere in the passage. I don't know what to make of this. Perhaps there's nothing in it, but I just mention it. I've had a rotten time in town. Your brother-in-law-elect was a model of discretion. His room at the Albany is a desert from a detecting point of view. No papers except a few English bills and receipts and invitations. I looked up a few of his inviters, but they were mostly men who had met him at the club or knew him in the army and could tell me nothing about his private life. He is known at several nightclubs. I made the round of them last night, or rather, this morning. General verdict? Generous but impervious. By the way, poker seems to have been his great game. No suggestion of anything crooked. He won pretty consistently on the whole, but never very spectacularly. I think the information we want must be in Paris. I have written to the Sûreté and the Crédit Lyonnais to produce his papers, especially his account and checkbook. I'm pretty dead with yesterday's and today's work. Dancing all night on top of a journey is a jolly proper joke. Unless you want me, I'll wait here for the papers, or I may run over to Paris myself. Cathcart's books here consist of a few modern French novels of the usual kind, and another copy of Manon, with which the catalogues call Curious Plates. He must have had a life somewhere, mustn't he? The enclosed bill from a beauty specialist in Bond Street may interest you. I called on her. She says he came regularly every week when he was in England. I drew quite a blank at King's Fenton on Sunday. Oh, but I told you that. I don't think the fellow ever went there. I wonder if he slunk off up into the moor. Is it worth rummaging about, do you think? Rather like looking for a needle in a bundle of hay. It's odd about that diamond cat. You got nothing out of the household, I suppose. It doesn't seem to fit number ten somehow. And yet you'd think somebody would have heard about it in the village if it had been lost. Well, so long. Yours ever, Charles Parker. Chapter 4 And His Daughter Much Afraid The women also looked pale and wan. The Pilgrim's Progress Mr. Bunter brought Parker's letter up to Lord Peter in bed on the Wednesday morning. The house was almost deserted, everybody having gone to attend the police court proceedings at North Ollerton. The thing would be purely formal, of course, but it seemed only proper that the family should be fully represented. The Dowager Duchess indeed was there. She had promptly hastened to her son's side and was living heroically in furnished lodgings but the younger Duchess thought her mother-in-law more energetic than dignified. There was no knowing what she might do if left to herself. She might even give an interview to a newspaper reporter. Besides, at these moments of crisis, a wife's right place is at her husband's side. Lady Mary was ill, and nothing could be said about that. And if Peter chose to stay smoking cigarettes in his pyjamas while his only brother was undergoing public humiliation— there was only what might be expected. Peter took after his mother. How that eccentric strain had got into the family her grace could not imagine, for the dowager came of a good Hampshire family. There must have been some foreign blood somewhere. Her own duty was clear, and she would do it. Lord Peter was awake, and looked rather fagged, as though he had been sleuthing in his sleep. Mr. Bunter wrapped him solicitously in a brilliant oriental robe, and placed the tray on his knees. Bunter, said Lord Peter rather fretfully, 
Your café au lait is the one tolerable incident in this beastly place. Thank you, my lord. Very chilly again this morning, my lord, but not actually raining. Lord Peter frowned over his letter. Anything in the paper, Bunter? Nothing urgent, my lord. A sale next week at Northbury Hall. Mr. Fleetwhite's library, my lord. A Caxton confessio amantis. What's the good of telling me that when we are stuck up here for God knows how long? I wish to heaven I'd stuck to books and never touched crime. Did you send those specimens up to Lubbock? Yes, my lord, said Bunter gently. Dr. Lubbock was the analytical gentleman. Must have facts, said Lord Peter. Facts. When I was a small boy, I always hated facts. Thought of them as nasty, hard things, all knobs, uncompromising. Yes, my lord. My old mother. Your mother, Bunter? I didn't know you had one. I always imagined you were turned out ready-made, so to speak. Excuse me, infernally rude of me. Beg your pardon, I'm sure. Not at all, my lord. My mother lives in Kent, my lord, near Maidstone. Seventy-five, my lord, and an extremely active woman for her years, if you'll excuse my mentioning it. I was one of seven. That's an invention, Bunter. I know better. You are unique. But I interrupted you. You were going to tell me about your mother. She always says, my lord, that facts are like cows. If you look them in the face hard enough, they generally run away. She is a very courageous woman, my lord. Lord Peter stretched out his hand impulsively, but Mr. Bunter was too well trained to see it. He had indeed already begun to strop a razor. Lord Peter suddenly bundled out of bed with a violent jerk and spread across the landing to the bathroom. Here he revived sufficiently to lift up his voice in Come unto these yellow sands. Thence, feeling in a purselish mood, he passed to I attempt from love's fever to fly, with such improvement of spirits, that against all custom he ran several gallons of cold water into the bath and sponged himself vigorously. Wherefore, after a rough toweling, he burst explosively from the bathroom and caught his shin somewhat violently against the lid of a large oak chest which stood at the head of the staircase, so violently indeed that the lid lifted with the shock and shut down with a protesting bang. Lord Peter stopped to say something expressive and to caress his legs softly with the palm of his hand. Then a thought struck him. He set down his towels, soap, sponge, loofah, bath-brush, and other belongings, and quietly lifted the lid of the chest. Whether, like the heroine of Northanger Abbey, he expected to find anything gruesome inside was not apparent. It is certain that, like her, he beheld nothing more startling than certain sheets and counterpanes neatly folded at the bottom. Unsatisfied, he lifted the top one of these gingerly and inspected it for a few moments in the light of the staircase window. He was just returning it to its place, whistling softly the while, when a little hiss of indrawn breath caused him to look up with a start. His sister was at his elbow. He had not heard her come. But she stood there in her dressing-gown, her hands clutched together on her breast. Her blue eyes were dilated till they looked almost black, and her skin seemed nearly the colour of her ash-blonde hair. Whimsy stared at her over the sheet he held in his arms, and the terror in her face passed over into his, stamping them suddenly with the mysterious likeness of blood relationship. Peter's own expression was that he stared like a stuck pig for about a minute. He knew, as a matter of fact, 
that he had recovered himself in a fraction of a second. He dropped the sheet into the chest and stood up. Hello, Polly, old thing, he said. Where have you been hiding all this time? First time I've seen you. Afraid you've been having a pretty thin time of it. He put his arm round her and felt her shrink. What's the matter? he demanded. What's up, old girl? Look here, Mary, we've never seen enough of each other, but I am your brother. Are you in trouble? Can't I? Trouble? she said. Are you silly, old Peter? Of course I'm in trouble. Don't you know they've killed my man and put my brother in prison? Isn't that enough to be in trouble about? She laughed, and Peter suddenly thought, She's talking like somebody in a blood-and-thunder novel. She went on more naturally. It's all right, Peter, truly. Only my head's so bad. I really don't know what I'm doing. What are you after? You made such a noise I came out. I thought it was a door banging. You'd better toddle back to bed, said Lord Peter. You're getting all cold. Why do girls wear such mimsy little pajim-jams in this damn cold climate? There, don't you worry. I'll drop in on you later, and we'll have a jolly old powwow, what? Not today. Not today, Peter. I'm going mad, I think. Sensation fiction again, thought Peter. Are they trying Gerald today? Not exactly trying, said Peter, urging her gently along to her room. It's just formal, you know. The jolly old magistrate bird hears the charge read, and then old Murbles pops up and says, Please, he wants only formal evidence given as he has to instruct counsel. That's biggie, you know. Then they hear the evidence of arrest, and Merble says old Gerald reserves his defence. That's all till the assizes. Evidence before the grand jury. A lot of bosh. That'll be early next month, I suppose. You will have to buck up and be fit by then. Mary shuddered. No. No. Couldn't I get out of it? I couldn't go through it all again. I should be sick. I'm feeling awful. No, don't come in. I don't want you. Ring the bell for Ellen. No, let go. Go away. I don't want you, Peter. Peter hesitated, a little alarmed. Much better not, my lord, if you'll excuse me, said Bunter's voice at his ear. Only produce hysterics, he added, as he drew his master gently from the door. Very distressing for both parties, and altogether unproductive of results. Better do wait for the return of her grace the dowager. Quite right, said Peter. He turned back to pick up his paraphernalia, but was dexterously forestalled. Once again he lifted the lid of the chest and looked in. What did you say you found on that skirt, Bunter? Gravel, my lord, and silver sand. Silver sand. Behind Riddlesdale Lodge the moor stretched starkly away and upward. The heather was brown and wet, and the little streams had no colour in them. It was six o'clock, but there was no sunset. Only a paleness had moved behind the thick sky from east to west all day. Lord Peter, tramping back after a long and fruitless search for tidings of the man with the motorcycle, voiced the dull suffering of his gregarious spirit. I wish old Parker was here, he muttered, and squelched down a sheep track. He was making not directly for the lodge, but for a farmhouse about two and a half miles distant from it, known as Grider's Hole. It lay almost due north of Riddlesdale village, a lonely outpost on the edge of the moor, in a valley of fertile land between two wide swells of heather. 
The track wound down from the height called Wemmerling Fell, skirted a vile swamp, and crossed the little river Rid about half a mile before reaching the farm. Peter had small hope of hearing any news at Grider's Hole, but he was filled with a sudden determination to leave no stone unturned. Privately, however, he felt convinced that the motorcycle had come by the high road, Parker's investigations notwithstanding, and perhaps passed directly through King's Fenton without stopping or attracting attention. Still, he had said he would search the neighbourhood, and Grider's Hole was in the neighbourhood. He paused to relight his pipe, then squelched steadily on. The path was marked with stout white posts at regular intervals, and presently with hurdles. The reason for this was apparent as one came to the bottom of the valley, for only a few yards on the left began the stretch of rough, reedy tussocks, with slobbering black bog between them, in which anything heavier than a water-wagtail would speedily suffer change into a succession of little bubbles. Whimsy stooped for an empty sardine tin which lay, horridly battered, at his feet, and slung it idly into the quag. It struck the surface with a noise like a wet kiss, and vanished instantly. With that instinct which prompts one, when depressed, to wallow in every circumstance of gloom, Peter leaned sadly upon the hurdles, and abandoned himself to a variety of shallow considerations upon, one, the vanity of human wishes, two, mutability, three, first love, four, the decay of idealism, five, the aftermath of the Great War, six, birth control, and seven, the fallacy of free will. This was his nadir, however. Realising that his feet were cold and his stomach empty, and that he still had some miles to go, he crossed the stream on a row of slippery stepping stones and approached the gate of the farm, which was not an ordinary five-barred one, but solid and uncompromising. A man was leaning over it, sucking a straw. He made no attempt to move at Whimsy's approach. "'Good evening,' said that nobleman in a sprightly manner, laying his hand on the catch. "'Chilly, ain't it?' The man made no reply, but leaned more heavily and breathed. He wore a rough coat and breeches, and his leggings were covered with manure. "'Seasonable, of course, what?' said Peter. "'Good for the sheep, I dare say.' makes their wool curl, and so on. The man removed the straw and spat in the direction of Peter's right boot. Do you lose many animals in the bog? went on Peter, carelessly unlatching the gate and leaning upon it in the opposite direction. I see you have a good wall all round the house. Must be a bit dangerous in the dark, what? If you're thinking of taking a little evening stroll with a friend. The man spat again pulled his hat over his forehead, and said briefly, "'What is he want?' "'Well,' said Peter, "'I thought of paying a little friendly call on Mr. Uh, "'on the owner of this farm, that is to say, "'the country neighbours and all that. "'Lonely kind of country, don't you see? "'Is he in, do you think?' "'The man grunted. "'I'm glad to hear it,' said Peter. "'It's so uncommonly jolly finding all you Yorkshire people "'so kind and hospitable, what? "'Never mind who you are.' "'Always a seat at the fireside and that sort of thing. "'Excuse me, but do you know you're leaning on the gate so I can't open it? "'I'm sure it's a pure oversight, "'only you mayn't realise that just where you're standing "'you get the maximum of leverage. "'What an awfully charming house this is, isn't it? "'All so jolly, stark and grim and all the rest of it. 
No creepers or little rose-grown porches or anything suburban of that sort. Who lives in it? The man surveyed him up and down for some moments, and replied, Messer Grimethorpe. Does he now? said Lord Peter. To think of that. Just the fellow I want to see. Model farmer, what? Wherever I go throughout the length and breadth of the North Riding, I hear of Mr. Grimethorpe. Grimethorpe's butter is the best. Grimethorpe's fleeces never go to pieces. Grimethorpe's pork melts on the fork. For Irish stews, take Grimethorpe's ewes. A tummy lined with Grimethorpe's beef never, never comes to grief. It has been my life's ambition to see Mr. Grimethorpe in the flesh. And you no doubt are his sturdy henchman and right-hand man. You leap from bed before the breaking day to milk the kine amid the scented hay. You, when the shades of evening gather deep, home from the mountain lead the mild-eyed sheep. You, by the ingle's red and welcoming blaze, tell your sweet infant's tales of olden days, a wonderful life, though a trifle monotonous perhaps in the winter. Allow me to clasp your honest hand. Whether the man was moved by this lyric outburst, or whether the failing light was not too dim to strike a pale sheen, from the metal in Lord Peter's palm. At any rate, he moved a trifle back from the gate. "'Thanks awfully, old Bean,' said Peter, stepping briskly past him. "'I take it I shall find Mr. Grimethorpe in the house?' The man said nothing, till Whimsy had proceeded about a dozen yards up the flagged path. Then he hailed him, but without turning round. "'Mister!' "'Yes, old thing,' said Peter affably, returning. "'Happen he'll set the dog on there?' "'It don't say so.' said Peter. The faithful hound welcomes the return of the prodigal, scene of family rejoicing. My own long-lost boy, sobs and speeches, beer all round for the delighted tenantry. Glees by the old fireside, till the rafters ring and all the smoked hams tumble down to join in the revelry. Good night, sweet prince, until the cows come home and the dogs eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel when the hounds of spring are on winter's traces. I suppose, he added to himself, they will have finished tea. As Lord Peter approached the door of the farm, his spirits rose. He enjoyed paying this kind of visit, although he had taken to detecting, as he might, with another conscience or constitution, have taken to Indian hemp for its exhilarating properties. At a moment when life seemed dust and ashes, he had not primarily the detective temperament. He expected next to nothing from inquiries at Grider's Hole, and, if he had, he might probably have extracted all the information he wanted by a judicious display of treasury notes to the glum man at the gate. Parker would in all likelihood have done so. He was paid to detect and do nothing else, and neither his natural gifts nor his education, at Barrow and Furness Grammar School, prompted him to stray into side-tracks at the beck of an ill-regulated imagination. But to Lord Peter the world presented itself as an entertaining labyrinth of side-issues. He was a respectable scholar in five or six languages, a musician of some skill and more understanding, something of an expert in toxicology, a collector of rare editions, an entertaining man about town, and a common sensationalist. He had been seen at half-past twelve on a Sunday morning walking in Hyde Park in a top-hat and frock-coat, reading the news of the world. His passion for the unexplored led him to hunt up obscure pamphlets in the British Museum, to unravel the emotional history of income tax collectors, and to find out where his own drains led to. In this case, the fascinating problem of a Yorkshire farmer, who habitually set the dogs on casual visitors, imperatively demanded investigation in a personal interview.
The result was unexpected. His first summons was unheeded, and he knocked again. This time there was a movement, and a surly male voice called out, Well, let in then, dangin, and dang thee! emphasized by the sound of something falling or thrown across the room. The door was opened unexpectedly by a little girl of about seven, very dark and pretty, and rubbing her arm as though the missile had caught her there. She stood defensively, blocking the threshold, till the same voice growled impatiently, Well, who is it? Good evening, said Whimsy, removing his hat. I hope you'll excuse me dropping in like this. I'm living at Riddlesdale Lodge. What of it? demanded the voice. Above the child's head, Whimsy saw the outline of a big, thick-set man smoking in the ingle nook of an immense fireplace. There was no light but the firelight, for the window was small, and dusk had already fallen. It seemed to be a large room, but a high oak settle on the farther side of the chimney ran out across it, leaving a cavern of impenetrable blackness beyond. "'May I come in?' said Whimsy. "'If thou must,' said the man ungraciously. Shut door, lass, what are you staring at? Go to the mother and bid her mend their manners for thee. This seemed a case of the pot lecturing the kettle on cleanliness, but the child vanished hurriedly into the blackness behind the settle, and Peter walked in. Are you Mr. Grimethorpe? he asked politely. What if I am? retorted the farmer. I've no call to be ashamed of my name. Rather not, said Lord Peter, nor of your farm. Delightful place, what? My name's Whimsy, by the way, Lord Peter Whimsy. In fact, the Duke of Denver's brother, you know. I'm sure I hate interrupting you. You must be busy with the sheep and all that. But I thought you wouldn't mind if I just ran over in a neighbourly way. Lonely sort of country, ain't it? I like to know the people next door and all that sort of thing. I'm used to London, you see, where people live pretty thick on the ground. I suppose very few strangers ever pass this way. None, said Mr. Grimthorpe, with decision. Well, perhaps it's as well, pursued Lord Peter. Makes one appreciate one's home circle more, what? Often think one sees too many strangers in town. Nothing like one's own family when all's said and done. Cosy, don't you know? Are you a married man, Mr. Grimethorpe? What the hell's that to you? growled the farmer, rounding on him with such ferocity that Whimsy looked about quite nervously for the dogs before mentioned. Oh, nothing, he replied. Only I thought that charming little girl might be yours. And if I thought she weren't, said Mr. Grimethorpe, I'd strangle the bitch and her mother together. What has got to say to that? As a matter of fact, the remark, considered as a conversational formula, seemed to leave so much to be desired that Whimsy's natural loquacity suffered a severe check. He fell back, however, on the usual resource of the mail, and offered Mr. Grimethorpe a cigar thinking to himself, as he did so, what a hell of a life the woman must lead. The farmer declined the cigar with a single word and was silent. Whimsy lit a cigarette for himself and became meditative, watching his companion. He was a man of about forty-five, apparently rough, harsh, and weather-beaten, with great ridgy shoulders and short, thick thighs, a bull-terrier with a bad temper. Deciding that delicate hints would be wasted on such an organism, Whimsy adopted a franker method. To tell the truth, Mr. Grimethorpe, he said, I didn't blow in without any excuse at all. Always best to provide oneself with an excuse for a call, what? Though it's so perfectly delightful to see you. I mean, no excuse might appear necessary. But fact is, I'm looking for a young man, a, an acquaintance of mine, 
who said he'd be roaming about this neighbourhood some time or other about now. Only I'm afraid I may have missed him. You see, I've only just got over from Corsica. Interest and country and all that, Mr. Grimthorpe, but a trifle out of the way. And from what my friend said, I think he must have turned up here about a week ago and found me out. Just my luck. But he didn't leave his card, so I can't be quite sure, you see. You didn't happen to come across him by any chance? Tall fellow with big feet on a motorcycle with a sidecar? I thought he might have come rooting about here. Hello, do you know him? The farmer's face had become swollen and almost black with rage. What day, sayest thou? he demanded thickly. I should think last Wednesday night or Thursday morning, said Peter, with a hand on his heavy malacca cane. I knew it, growled Mr. Grimthorpe. A slot, and all these damned women with their dirty ways. Look here, mister. The tyke with a friend of thine? Well, I wore it stately Wednesday and Thursday. I knew that, didn't I? And so did the friend, didn't I? And if I didn't, it had been the worse for an. He'd have been in Peter's pot if I'd a cotton, and that's where they'll be this and in a minute, Blaster. And if I find them sneaking here again, I'll blast every bone in his body and send them to look for thee there. And with these surprising words, he made for Peter's throat like a bulldog. That won't do, said Peter, disengaging himself with an ease which astonished his opponent, and catching his wrist in a grip of mysterious and excruciating agony. It isn't wise, you know. Might murder a fellow like that. Nasty business murder. Coroner's inquest and all that sort of thing. Counsel for the prosecution asking all sorts of inquisitive questions, and a fellow putting a string round your neck. Besides, your method's a bit primitive. Stand still, you fool, or you'll break your arm. Feeling better? That's right. Sit down. You'll get into trouble one of these days, behaving like that, when you're asked a civil question. Get out the house, said Mr. Grimthorpe sullenly. Certainly said Peter. I have to thank you for a very entertaining evening, Mr. Grimthorpe. I'm sorry you can't give me no news of my friend. Mr. Grimthorpe sprang up with a blasphemous ejaculation and made for the door, shouting, Jabez! Lord Peter stared after him for a moment and then stared round the room. Something fishy here, he said. Fellow knows something. Murderous sort of brute. I wonder. He peered round the settle and came face to face with a woman, a dim patch of whiteness in the thick shadow. You, she said in a low, hoarse gasp. You, you are mad to come here. Quick, quick, he has gone for the dogs. She placed her two hands on his breast, thrusting him urgently back. Then, as the firelight fell upon his face, she uttered a stifled shriek and stood petrified, a Medusa head of terror. Medusa was beautiful, says the tale, and so was this woman a broad white forehead under massed dusky hair, black eyes glowing under straight brows, a wide passionate mouth, a shape so wonderful that even in that strenuous moment sixteen generations of feudal privilege stirred in Lord Peter's blood. His hands closed over hers instinctively, but she pulled herself hurriedly away and shrank back. Madam, said Whimsy, recovering himself, I don't quite— A thousand questions surged up in his mind, but before he could frame them, a long yell and another, and then another came from the back of the house. Run, run, she said. The dogs, my God, my God, what will become of me? Go, if you don't want to see me killed, go, go, have pity. Look here, said Peter. Can't I stay and protect? You can stay and murder me, said the woman. Go! Peter cast public school tradition to the winds 
caught up his stick and went. The brutes were at his heels as he fled. He struck the foremost with his stick, and it dropped back, snarling. The man was still leaning on the gate, and Grimthorpe's hoarse voice was heard shouting to him to seize the fugitive. Peter closed with him. There was a scuffle of dogs and men, and suddenly Peter found himself thrown bodily over the gate. As he picked himself up and ran, he heard the farmer cursing the man and the man retorting that he couldn't help it. Then the woman's voice uplifted in a frightened wail. He glanced over his shoulder. The man and the woman and a second man, who had now joined the party, were beating the dogs back and seemed to be persuading Grimethorpe not to let them through. Apparently their remonstrances had some effect, for the farmer turned moodily away and the second man called the dogs off, with much whip-cracking and noise. The woman said something and her husband turned furiously upon her and struck her to the ground. Peter had made a movement to go back but a strong conviction that he could only make matters worse for her arrested him. He stood still, and waited till she had picked herself up and gone in, wiping the blood and dirt from her face with her shawl. The farmer looked round, shook his fist at him, and followed her into the house. Jabez collected the dogs and drove them back, and Peter's friend returned to lean over the gate. Peter waited till the door had closed upon Mr. and Mrs. Grimthorpe, then he pulled out his handkerchief and, in the half-darkness, signalled cautiously to the man, who slipped through the gate and came very slowly down to him. "'Thanks very much,' said Whimsy, putting money into his hand. "'I'm afraid I've done unintentional mischief.' The man looked at the money, and at him. "'There's a master's way with them as comes to look at the missus,' he said. "'I'd best keep away, if so be they won't have a blood on the head.' "'See here,' said Peter. Did you by any chance see a young man with a motorcycle, wandering round here last Wednesday or thereabouts? Nay. Wednesday? Twill be the day the mester went to Stapley, I reckon, after machines. Nay, I see not. All right. If you find anybody who did, let me know. Here's my name, and I'm staying at Riddlesdale Lodge. Good night. Many thanks. The man took the card from him and slouched back without a word of farewell. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Clouds of Witness, Part 3 of 9, by Dorothy Sayers. If you've enjoyed this episode, please become a supporter by going to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and thanks for pitching in. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me next time and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stangy Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.